we had a 13-year-old writing about Islamophobia, for instance. That's really exciting being able to put out that voice where thus far nothing exists for them to talk in that space. This is Know What You Think. I'm Sasha Rosen. People talk a lot about whether newspapers are going to survive the internet. But one kind of newspaper is actually doing pretty well around the world right now. It's a real, printed, paper newspaper that gets mailed out through the post and read. They're children's newspapers. Really good, news-focused newspapers for kids. Former Sydney Morning Herald journalist Saffron Howden is about to start printing one here in Australia. She's going to tell us a little about how children's newspapers work around the world. The ones that showed her how it could be done. Saffron, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Why are there newspapers for grown-ups in the first place? Why are there newspapers for grown-ups? A lot of people would ask that question because they're not doing so well at the moment. I think, for me anyway, as a print journalist, and that's what I've been for the last sort of more than 15 years, there's something really special about reading the news in the printed form, holding it in front of you, having time to contemplate, to let it soak in, let the images work with the words. I think we get very used to, with everything that we read online these days and and even television, we get used to that kind of swipe, move on to something else, click onto something else. Newspapers allow you that time and space to contemplate what you're reading. Craig Mudd, when he was talking about online publications, which are very lightweight, said the great thing was that they come to an end, they finish, unlike the internet. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I think it would be a rare person these days who, for the daily news, would read right through to the end. And so, of course, news websites are being designed to allow for that, to allow for the fact that someone's going to click away halfway through the story, but they still want to keep you on their site. And then you've got the clickbait and the headlines to take you away and keep you on that site. Kids' newspapers are usually printed. They're not online. What else is different in a kids' newspaper? Look, there are a lot of things that are the same in a way, which is what's interesting. And, of course, there are differences. Some of the kids' newspapers around the world... They really sort of show the way because they're covering the news that adults consume, but they do it in a way that kids can understand. So if you can imagine you've got your niece, nephew, child in the room with you and they're saying, everyone keeps talking about the Paris attacks. So what, what is going on there? I'm so scared, that kind of thing. So the way the kids' newspapers, and I'm thinking particularly about, there's one that's very successful in the UK called First News. There's three daily kids' newspapers in France, which seems insane, but they've got a readership of about 150,000. Those three are the same publisher, just different age ranges for each. That's right, yeah, Yeah, different age ranges. So the way they approached something like the Paris attacks last year was very different from the way your adult newspapers would. So very much getting away from the fear factor of, oh my gosh, here's the blood and the guts and the gore and how scared everyone is and much more allaying people's fears. So when something like that happens, and anyone who has children will know, it's very easy for them to get worried about themselves, their own safety, the safety of the people around them, their loved ones. The idea is to say, okay, well, look, this did happen, and these are the bare facts of what happened. Certainly people died, certainly people were scared, but are you safe? Well, yes, you are. This is not something that happens every day. It doesn't mean that you can't walk down the street anymore in Paris. Your life goes on and it's okay. It was a very particular way all the children's newspapers covered the Paris attacks. The editor, I think it's Francois Dufour, of the three papers was saying the important thing is just not to make kids scared. That's the cardinal rule of putting together a kid's newspaper. That's right. I read an interview with him where he mentioned that. 
And I think particularly with those kinds of stories, and of course there are a myriad of those over the world on any given day, is that I feel, and certainly the producers of kids' newspapers overseas feel, we shouldn't be completely blocking them off from that. The idea is to say, look, these things are happening, but let's talk about it in a way that doesn't completely freak you out and give you nightmares. So rather than covering it like Saw shows you dead bodies, for the tsunami they had the row of coffins but not the people in them. Yes, exactly. So even that, it would be up to each individual editor, I guess, but there are ways to, for instance, tell the story of Syria and the migration crisis. And you can do that without ever even referring to the dead bodies and what ISIS is doing. You can do it by talking about the impact on the children who have, for instance, fled Syria due to the fighting. In a way, even as an adult, when you start thinking about these situations from that perspective, it kind of opens up whole new avenues of the way you think about it. Because, well, so what happens to these kids? They leave home with their families, or sometimes not. They travel huge distances. They end up in refugee camps. And then a really simple question that I think wouldn't otherwise occur to you, what happens to their schooling? Like I say, it's just not something I think that would occur to you naturally unless you were thinking about kids as your audience. So what's relevant to kids, particularly in a country like Australia, apart from their family home life, is school, the biggest part of their life. That's where they spend most of their time. Well, so what happens to that when these kids are travelling all these distances, they're trying to find a new home in a safe country? Sometimes they can be travelling for years, literally, and of course there's no access to education when they're doing that. But of course the other thing you have to keep in mind is that you sort of need to give kids a solution when you're covering the news for them so they don't come away from a story going, gosh, that was so depressing. Uh, what are we going to do? The world's a terrible place. It's amazing how much of the way you cover news for kids should in some ways be applicable for adults because I think we'd probably all be a bit better off looking for some of those solutions. So in our coverage of Syria, we had to also show them that people had realised this and they were doing something about it. So, for instance, you know, you've got bodies like the UNHCR setting up temporary schools in refugee camps so that kids aren't completely missing their education. And we spoke to some kids, we interviewed them, who had missed school. And it's heartbreaking, you know, kids who are sort of 11 years old who want to be doctors and lawyers and they've missed five years of school. Is that ever going to be possible? And then we, of course, come in with the, well, look, people are actually trying to do something about this. And even in the countries, you know, in which they're settling, there's catch-up schooling and a lot of people are trying to do something about this now. Do you sit and look at the story and say, all right, so we've got these interviews, we've got those interviews, we're going to talk about this. Do you think, do we have enough kids in the story? Do we have enough kids' questions? Or is it more organic than that? It's a little more organic. Some of the people who are writing for us and I myself, they're very experienced journalists. So you tackle the news stories in the same way as you would when you were writing a news story for anyone. And obviously there's a certain formula to that. You've got to get the information out there. You've got to give some different perspectives. And so that all works in for kids' stories as well. Obviously, you're trying to give them examples of whatever it is you're talking about that they can relate to. So having kids in stories is a key part of that. But the other thing is every single news story has an angle for children. Like Syria, like the Paris attacks, there's always something that they can grab hold of and go, oh, OK, now I get it. You sometimes have children writing for you as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is something that I think is so exciting because there is just not much of an avenue for that, certainly in Australia. And so we do things like we have opinion pieces. All of our opinion pieces are written by kids. They get to choose whatever it is they're passionate about. 
How old are they normally? I think in terms of the opinion pieces, I think eight years old is the youngest we've had so far. They can go up to wherever they like, really, um, as long as they're children. We had a 13-year-old writing about Islamophobia, for instance, and she was just passionate about it and wanted to say something about it. It's really exciting being able to put out that voice onto a national stage where thus far nothing exists for them to talk in that space. And in a sense, this is dipping your toe in compared to the French kids' newspapers. I think it's Mon Quotidien and it's got a, a couple of stable mates and every issue they have kids on the editing committee. Yeah, that seems amazing to me, although something I would love to do. But yeah, you're quite right. So they bring in kids every week. It's fascinating, the process, of course, because sometimes what adults think is, wow, that's amazing. Kids are like, oh my God, that is so boring. In one of the articles about it, he, he has this wonderful joke, he thinks, about a chicken crossing the road and he pitches it to his editorial committee and it sinks like a lead balloon. I know, which is just shows the importance of actually checking with the kids sometimes before you go to print. So one of the things that's important to you in putting together a paper like this, and it's probably important to other people who put together kids' newspapers like First News or Mon Quotidien, or there are actually a couple others, one in Germany. I think Mon Quotidien has got some branches in Hong Kong and Egypt, or at least it was trying last I read. One of the things that all of those papers do is they bring kids into the national conversation. First News, for example, had comment from Boris Johnson and David Cameron on whether Britain should leave the Eurozone. You've just recently taken some kids to Canberra to interview the Prime Minister? Yes, that's right, and the opposition leader and the Greens leader. So obviously this is an election year, and obviously kids can't vote in Australia under the age of 18. But they're still passionate about the things that are going on in the world. They still want to have a say in it. Their parents vote. Their siblings might vote. And obviously policy decisions certainly affect them, even if they can't go to the ballot box. So we took a 13 and a 14-year-old down to Canberra to interview the three sort of main political leaders. Because we want to have a broad coverage of the political issues, there were some topics in there that we workshop with other kids first before we went down and then I got the kids to ask those questions. But I also said, look, this is your moment. You won't probably, this won't happen to you again while you're a child anyway. So are there topics that you're particularly interested in and think should be discussed? What sort of topics did they come up with? Well, really interestingly, mental health was a huge issue for them because they were so passionate about it. I thought, you know what, definitely let's throw it in there because I think the statistics are one in four Australian kids suffers some kind of mental health problem in their childhood. So it was really interesting to see them ask those questions because both the reporters had a backstory to why they wanted to ask it and so they explained that in the course of their questions. And whether it was personal experience with someone who had really difficult problems that they were dealing with at a really young age, even suicide in one of their cases. So they told those backstories and then they asked the questions, well, what are we going to do about this? This is basically one of the biggest issues facing our generation. And it was fascinating to see that that came from them completely. And now in our paper, we'll be able to cover that issue. We can just bundle them all up into one big ball rather than naming names. Were politicians good at talking to kids? Um, I would say some better than others. <laughs> I think they all have their particular styles. I would say they did their best. So helpful, but not always on the money. 
I think for them it's probably difficult because they're used to being interviewed by hard-nosed, cynical journalists and then to have a journalist who's 13 or 14-year-old come in there with a completely different perspective, it takes them a sec to relax and get out of that well, mode. Especially with you, an experienced journalist in the room, they must be looking from one to the other, one to the other, wondering, is there going to be a surprise here later on? They were very good, actually. They all focused on the young reporters themselves, which was very nice and very good for the reporters. Getting that sort of attention from a political leader, it's not normal for young people. Where are young people normally in the national conversation? Where should they be? Well, they're not there. And I think that's really sad. I mean, they're there in small ways. They're there in community ways. They're there in probably much less visible ways. And in some ways, that's good because, you know, they sort of need to be protected from, for instance, some of the consequences of being involved in a national conversation and putting your name to an opinion and so forth. And we all know where that can end up on social media these days. What do you think we miss by not having those voices in the national conversation? Well, I think this experience we had in Canberra is one of it, is that I think we presume as adults, and I say this partly as a a mother, although my daughter is very young, but we obviously are making decisions on their behalf, as we should be. But are we sort of listening to the things that really resonate with them enough? And then are we making decisions that are not quite on the money? And if we bring them into that conversation, we can say, okay, well, actually, we can tweak this a bit. And we can say, no, we haven't considered that. And maybe we should be considering that. I mean, the mental health question had certainly never occurred to me personally as an editor of a kid's paper that we should be asking that in an election year to the leaders. Francois Dufour was saying that they asked for some questions after the Paris attacks, which was one of the big things they covered. And one of the questions he got back was, is it normal to be afraid? What sort of questions have you gotten from some of the kids who've contributed to Crinkling and why are those questions so good? They are good, aren't they? I I agree with that and that's a really good example, is it normal to be afraid? And I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about allaying their fears as well and giving them answers where, where in adult newspapers you may not. So I think the great thing about kids is they cut through all of the sort of the white noise and they're really good at getting to the heart of the matter really quickly. And I admire that as a journalist because that's been my job for a long time. And in a way, they're the best people to do interviews, I think. As a journalist, you're always, or I assume you're always talking to big, powerful, important people and you want them to treat you like a grown-up. Kids don't have that problem. (laughs) No, that's true. That's true. I don't know about wanting them to treat me like a grown-up. I mean, it's always been a favourite thing of mine as a journalist to say, okay, so assume I know nothing because I actually know nothing and explain it to me (laughs) in a really simple way. And I have to be embarrassed by that. Kids don't. They get to just go, is it normal to be afraid? And I think one of the resources that some of the papers overseas have drawn on in the UK and in France and we are as well, is child psychologists because they're really good at helping us as adults almost mediate for us with kids, particularly when you get to those really scary topics, like something like a terrorist attack, to work out what's appropriate and then be able to respond in the right way as well. And kids are good at noticing you don't always have to have gloomy, terrible things happening in news. I know, which is wonderful, and it's something so refreshing about kids' papers. We get to cover the animals born at the zoo and the sand sculpture exhibition, and we're doing a story at the moment on the first flower to ever bloom in space. And how did they make it happen on the International Space Station? How do you break that down? How do you describe that? 
What you do is, unfortunately, you have to do a lot of research because, of course, the important thing with kids is you want to get the facts right. You don't want them reading it and then embarrassing you, going to their science teacher and saying, oh, my gosh, I read this story in my paper and it was completely wrong. And I think we should write a letter. You don't want that. So That sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's more terrifying than some of, you know, some of the letters I've got over the years as a journalist. Ones from kids telling you've got something wrong, I think, is way worse. It really just cuts you down. A lot of research into how it works. And then there's the very neat trick, which is why I think it's important to have professional journalists writing, even though it's for kids, to have professional journalists writing the story, is the ability to break down that really complicated, okay, what soils did you use? How did you introduce the oxygen? What about the sunlight? How did you do it in zero gravity? And then explain that, use more simple language to break it down almost into a graph of how does this work. And presumably getting to explain really fundamental things. In that Eurozone story, they start by saying people are interested in knowing what Boris Johnson thinks because he's very popular. Exactly. And it was really interesting, actually, with First News's coverage of the Eurozone debate, I saw a lot of feedback they got on social media from adults saying, can't wait to read First News this week because I don't understand it, so I'm really looking forward to you explaining it to me. That's why I used to watch Behind the News, and now I get to read Vox.com and pretend it's a grown-up thing. How tricky are the ethics of advertising? Really tricky. Well... I take that back. It's actually, in some ways, it's really simple. We have an advertising pledge because obviously as a newspaper, you just can't survive without some kind of sponsorship. Our pledge basically says that we won't publish anything that we consider harmful to children. That rules out any junk food or food at all, in fact, any clothing, any sexualization of children, any violence. But what it does open us up to is all of these fabulous cultural programs that exist across our country for kids and that you don't really hear about very much except maybe through the school channels. But So this isn't Batman Lego at the powerhouse? No, it's exhibitions at the MCA and particular programs they might have and what's Questacon doing this week. There's actually a huge range of stuff out there that works really well for kids. That means that we can get a model that can support really high quality journalism so that kids are getting the facts and it's all proofread and sub-edited and fact-checked. But also these cultural institutions have an opportunity to go, wow, okay, we've now got a dedicated news publication of high quality for kids and so we can speak directly to them about our programs. Saffron, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks also to Glenda Quack for suggesting Saffron as a guest. If you like the idea of kids' newspapers, Saffron is making one. You can find information on subscribing at crinklingnews.com.au. The first edition is coming out next month. We'll put a link up on our show page and in the podcast notes for this episode so you can go and have a look. If you like this episode and you want to hear more like it, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink to hear all this season's episodes and two seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get each episode one day early before it goes to air. Is there something you think we should make a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. If you like us, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts, so choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Know What You Think is produced by Samira Farrow, additional production by Olivia Peary-Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Sasha Rosen. Keep listening for our next episode.